Hi, I'm Wendy Francis, nutrition therapist, emotional eating expert, and entrepreneur. I've helped countless people overcome their obsession with food and weight. Isn't it time you overcame what you had become and ignite who you were meant to be? Your time to become an overcomer starts now. Hey everyone, thanks again for joining me for another episode of Overcoming Your Emotional Eating. You are going to hear some things on today's call that you might not like. I'm so sorry. On the podcast today, I'm actually talking about caffeine. I know that we have a country and a culture that almost really revolves around caffeine. We now have specific stores that revolve around caffeine consumption, large-scale coffee companies, and I didn't have that when I was young. The change that's happened radically in our society over the last 50 years has been enormous when it comes to caffeine, caffeine consumption, and what those kinds of drinks and beverages look like. We do know how they make you feel though and what they do to your brain and your body. So take a listen to understand more about how caffeine impacts you, your brain, your body, your emotionality, your health, and a little bit more on actually gaining perspective and education on how much caffeine content is in certain beverages. It's something that eludes most people. If you can't sleep at night, think about how much caffeine you had all day. Because a lot of times there's a definitive correlation. Take a listen so that you can learn more. Part of my desire in doing this podcast was to really bring knowledge base to society in ways that I know is overlooked or not given out. And Caffeine is one of those areas that kind of holds this special place in my heart because I've had too many clients with anxiety in my career and recognizing that too much caffeine with anxiety can spike that anxiety. Many of my clients can't sleep and have an insomnia and have overlooked the fact that they had tea or coffee in the evening. And so that this can spiral somebody who's in depression or anxiety or OCD or have any facet of an eating issue or emotional eating. So it is my intention with this podcast, it is kind of a labor of love. For those of you that don't know, some podcasts are monetized. At this point, my podcast is not. If you want to help me monetize it, get on my email list so we can talk. But this is a labor of love. And in that, I really bring this to you all so that you can learn and grow because I really do believe that that is the biggest element of life. Thank you as always for listening. And you can take a look at my website, www.wendyfrancis.com. If you got some ideas on how to monetize, get some sponsorship for my podcast, please let me know this. You can also find me on Insta, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for joining me and for taking this time out for yourself to learn something new. Awesome. So today, you know, I'm always trying to bring new things to think about, to learn, to grow from, to understand, whether that be the psychology of things 
or the physiology of things or the physicality of things. The reality is we're always constantly learning and growing. And it's important for me as a human being, it's kind of my value construct, that I learn something new every day. Sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's unintentional and sometimes it's not good. <laughs> we always like the things we learn that are good. <laughs> don't, don't you like those fun, fun surprises? An unexpected something in the mail, a card from a friend, a hi from somebody or a, a call from someone that you've been thinking about. Those are great unexpected surprises, right? The other ones can go the other way. In any case, love bringing you new things to learn and to think about and grow as I continue to grow on my journey in life. And today is no different. You know, just thinking about what I get questions about so often you know, doesn't always relate specifically to food. It can relate to a number of other aspects of our life. And thinking about caffeine and what our culture currently has related to with respect to caffeine is pretty astounding. You know, when I grew up, full transparency, I was born in 1971, so that dates me, and there was no Starbucks on my block. I will tell you that. And I don't remember a Dunkin' Donuts until I moved to this town called Bud Lake in New Jersey, which not many people have heard of. But Bud Lake, New Jersey, I lived in the Village Green apartment with a single mother. And we had a Dunkin' Donuts there. I guess that the adults in the area probably drank coffee from there, but it definitely wasn't swamped or flooded or had a drive-through like you'll see from a lot of the coffee stores that we see today, which brings up, you know, the, the incidents and the issue around caffeine. We know that caffeine is a central nervous system stimulant, and it has the ability to enhance concentration and boost mood. Some people will also say that it, it can increase metabolism. Whether it comes from coffee, tea, energy drinks, or soda, many people feel like they need caffeine in the morning to increase alertness and the motivation to work. Research says that more than 90% of adults regularly drink some facet of caffeine in the United States. On average, 200 milligrams of caffeine per day. This has continually increased over the last 15 years, which is super interesting, which would make sense based on what we're seeing parallel. There was no energy drinks either when I was younger. Just a heads up or an FYI. So 200 milligrams can be the equivalent of two six to eight ounce cups of coffee or maybe five, 12 ounce cans of soft drinks, depending on what kind of soft drinks that you have. In most cases, drinking caffeinated beverages is relatively safe and, and not habit forming. However, for anybody that has drank, drank, drinking, sorry, grammar, drank, <laughs> you know, a cup of coffee every morning or two cups a day and then tries not to drink it or is unable to get it that day, you will recognize that even though it's not quote-unquote habit forming, you can get a heck of a headache when you are trying to come off caffeine, whether you're doing it on purpose or you just can't, you just ran out of coffee for the day. People can develop a dependence on coffee and we know this and other caffeinated beverages very quickly. And this is the reason why. There's actually chemical changes 
that sustained consumption of caffeine produced in the brain. This is really cool to me. I didn't know this. If someone drinks caffeine on a daily basis, you'll develop a tolerance. Just like you would develop a tolerance to sugar, which we've talked about in the past, to drugs or alcohol. Now, we're not li- I'm not liking it to drugs or alcohol, but just so you understand that there's a tolerance perspective to caffeine. After a while, the user requires more and more caffeine to produce the same effects of alertness. So if you usually have one cup, then after a while you might have to go to one and a half, or you have a really busy day, you grab another half a cup in the afternoon, you get the, you get the gist. Regular caffeine drinkers become acclimated to that wake-up effect or that caffeine fix, similar to other things, right? People who abruptly stop drinking caffeine after prolonged use will start to suffer from withdrawal symptoms and experience cravings, whether, you know, that's headaches, lethargy, inability to focus, tiredness, apathy, and that's usually why people wind up going back to caffeine because they feel terrible when they start to come off of it. So how much caffeine are in certain drinks nowadays? Now, I will tell you, if you're really trying to figure out and monitor how much caffeine you drink and you do go to coffee shops or drink energy drinks, I do encourage you to get on their website and really take a look at the specifics because they do vary greatly depending on brewing, and type of, if you're looking at coffee, energy drinks, there's an astounding difference from, you know, anything from 50 to 75 milligrams to I've seen as high as 340 milligrams in an energy drink. Radical difference. But if we're just talking about one eight ounce cup of coffee, there's about 96 milligrams. I round that to 100. In an eight ounce cup of tea, 45, black tea. 45 milligrams in an eight ounce cup of green tea, 28 milligrams, and in a dark cola, 22 milligrams, eight ounces. So if you drink a 12 or 16 ounce, you have to do the adjustments accordingly. Mountain Dew, however, for eight ounces is 54 milligrams of caffeine. So each cola is a little bit different, just like the energy drink. So it's important if you're trying to get a sense of how much caffeine you drink, to recognize that you really need to look it up nowadays. It's not as simple as it used to be. Despite the similarities between caffeine dependency and other addictions, some healthcare officials debate as to whether or not it can qualify as an actual addiction. They really are looking at this. I had no idea, so I was floored. But I think it's really cool to learn something new. They're actually looking, and you'll hear this later, and something I'm going to report to you, but they're actually looking at putting caffeine addiction on the DSM-5, I believe, because they're seeing people really need it to function during their day. And that is very similar to what happens with other drugs or alcohol, that you need it to function. We know that amphetamines and cocaine stimulate the area of the brain linked to reward and motivation to a higher extent than caffeine does, but it still links to the same reward center of the brain. This might sound super familiar to the sugar call that I bought you a couple of weeks ago. Caffeine causes a surge of dopamine within the brain, but not large enough to surge the unbalance of the reward system like the other drugs might do. 
So because of this, the American Psychiatric Association doesn't currently identify caffeine addiction as a substance abuse disorder. However, it does recognize caffeine withdrawal as a clinical condition. Isn't that really interesting? Because the withdrawal is really what gets people, right? So here's the cool part. Caffeine actually really affects your brain. And I guess I never thought about this. The reason why they're considering it to be addictive is because of the way that caffeine affects the human brain and produces that alert feeling that people crave. Soon after caffeine is consumed, it's absorbed through the small intestine, dissolved into the bloodstream. Because the chemical is both water and fat soluble, it's able to penetrate the blood-brain barrier and enter into the brain. Structurally, caffeine closely resembles a molecule called adenosine that's naturally present in the brain. Caffeine resembles the molecule so much that it can fit neatly into the brain cell's receptors for adenosine. That's so cool to me. So caffeine resembles adenosine so much that it can like get the same uptake from the cells. And effectively, it blocks off adenosine. Normally, the adenosine produced over time locks into these receptors and produces a feeling of tiredness. So when caffeine molecules block these receptors, they prevent this from occurring, and that's how a sense of alertness and energy is experienced until the caffeine is metabolized. That's pretty cool, isn't it, to learn that? I, I, I thought it was cool. Additionally, some of the brain's own natural stimulants are released, such as dopamine and work effectively when the adenosine receptors are blocked. So the surplus of adenosine cues the adrenal glands, adrenal glands to secrete adrenaline, another stimulus, and this further increases alertness and reduces feelings of tiredness. So there really are things going on in the brain when you drink that morning cup of coffee or tea. There's really stuff going on. In people who drink caffeine regularly, the brain's chemistry and physical characteristics actually change over time. We actually see this, just so you guys know, we actually see this in other facets of addiction as well. The brain cells will begin to grow more adenosine receptors in an attempt to maintain equilibrium. It's how tolerance to caffeine develops because the brain has more adenosine receptors it takes more caffeine to block a significant proportion of them and achieve the same desired effect. Who knew? I didn't know. Maybe you guys knew, but I didn't know all this was going on in the brain when I drank a cup of, I don't do coffee anymore, sorry. I used to do some coffee, and every once in a while I'll have a decaf, but I pulled myself away because it didn't feel good to me anymore at my age. But I do do matcha, and that does have caffeine. And I had no idea that all this stuff was going on in my brain. So here's the signs of the caffeine addiction, right? If any of you out there are worried. The fifth edition of the, the DSM doesn't currently recognize caffeine as an addiction, but it does recognize it as a condition for future study. So it is something to recognize. Rather than going by the actual amount of caffeine consumed per day, caffeine addiction is discerned by the way the substance affects an individual's day-to-day -day functioning. So, for example, somebody might drink 400 milligrams of caffeine a day. So what's recommended on average 
would be 200 milligrams a day. That would be kind of the high end. Realistically, however, if somebody, let's say they consume 400 milligrams, which is twice the allotted dosage a day, but when they don't drink it, they feel just fine and they can function without it, they wouldn't be considered within this construct uh, that the DSM may develop around addiction. But if somebody, let's say, only drinks one cup of coffee, but they can't function without it, well, then, in fact, they would be considered for this issue. So here's what they're considering. If, in fact, you have any of three of what I'm going to list, you would be considered, if this goes through, to have an issue with caffeine addiction. So one, a persistent desire or unsuccessful effort to cut down or control your caffeine use. So if you know you're constantly shaky, if you're unfocused, if you're drinking large amounts of coffee regularly and you can't cut it back, that would be considered one of the criteria for the DSM-5. Continued caffeine use despite knowledge of having persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problems that is likely to have been caused or exacerbated by caffeine. Here's what people don't think about. Anxiety and caffeine are related. If you have, I mean, anxiety is a psychological disorder. Yes, I get that. But if you are drinking too much caffeine, it is going to make the anxiety worse. There's no doubt about it. So if you have any facet of anxiety, it's important to recognize that what you eat and drink can really impact your moods. Conversely, for individuals with depression, there are some people that recommend small amounts of caffeine to see if, in fact, it changes that individual's mood status. So you have to recognize what your food and drinks do to your mood. Did a call on that before, but didn't really talk about caffeine. But it is important with certain psychological disorders to really recognize what caffeine does to them and if it increases the issue or decreases it. So third criteria, if you have withdrawal as manifested by any withdrawal symptoms, caffeine, headaches, lethargy, apathy, things that I mentioned before. If, in fact, there's recurrent caffeine use resulting in failure to fulfill major role obligations. So if, for example, you are in the middle of teaching class, if you're a teacher and you run out to Starbucks and you leave your class behind, I'm just kidding, hopefully you would never do that. But obviously then you would be considered for this. If a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to attain caffeine, a craving or a strong desire or urge to use caffeine. Most experts recommend that adults should consume no more than 400 milligrams, as I mentioned before which is the equivalent to four cups of coffee. To me, that's a lot. Most of the research I have read says 200 milligrams, and there are reasons that I'm going to mention in just a minute because it's awful hard to stay hydrated when you're drinking a lot of caffeine. We know the issues that come from dehydration, right? That's kind of been widely known. Hydrate, drink water, make sure you're getting plenty of water because we know that it helps with flushing the body of toxins, we know that it helps kidneys, we know that it helps with weight loss, we know that it helps muscles to be supple, and we know that it helps with skin and hair. We know all the positives of hydration. Yet, we drink tons of caffeine and we wonder why we're dehydrated. So here's what happens. When we drink caffeine, it acts as a diuretic and it pushes water out of our body. 
we then become further dehydrated. So for every eight ounces of coffee or 100 milligrams of caffeine that you consume, you need to consume eight ounces of water just to get back to a zero balance. So for example, if in fact you're supposed to drink eight cups of water a day, 64 ounces, I'm just gonna go with average. If you're supposed to drink 64 ounces of water every day just to maintain your hydration status, but yet you drink four cups of coffee, which is 400 milligrams, you need to drink four more cups or 32 ounces on top of that to maintain hydration status. Therein lies the secondary issue. Besides all the brain stuff that I mentioned, there's a hydration component. It is very easy to get dehydrated when you are drinking so much caffeine, and that can create an issue with a number of different things, right? Whether it be weight loss or kidneys or muscles. And so it's really important to recognize that caffeine, you know, it can definitely disrupt your sleep. It can create migraines and other headaches. It can create irritability, quickened heartbeat, muscle tremors, nervousness, and nausea. The side effects you can kick just by kind of decreasing your caffeine a day unless you're caffeine intolerant or you raise your caffeine tolerance up and you have to then move through some withdrawal. So the reality is if you need to cut back, remember that there's been change in the brain and there has been change in the hydration status, but let's talk more about what to do. If you consume a higher level of caffeine, don't cold turkey it. You can clearly see that there are some physiological ramifications to coming off caffeine. So recognize that and make sure you decrease. I don't tell people to decrease more than 50 milligrams at a time. So you come down 50 milligrams, hold for a couple days. Wait till some of those symptoms pass and then come down for another 50 milligrams. And let that clear out for three, five, or even seven days. Going from, you know, 400 milligrams to zero is going to make you feel terrible, and it's not necessarily going to prove anything, so to speak, except you're just going to feel awful. Coming off caffeine, we know, can take up to 21 to 30 days. So if for some reason you have to do that, recognize it can take quite a while, and to hang in there. One of the best fixes for caffeine withdrawal is a small amount of caffeine and use it in a titrated quantity. So if you're coming down 50 milligrams at a time, then it might just be taking a sip or two of coffee to get in, let's just say, 10 milligrams if you can't get through that headache. Caffeine is a substance that we don't talk about a lot, but it's important that we start to because of the way that we roll in our country it's very important to understand what this substance does to us our brains and our body and as jim Rohn says take care of your body it really is the only place that you have to live thanks for listening if you like this podcast share it with a friend rate review and subscribe you never know who you'll help become the next overcomer.